It's Monday, February 5th. This was no pinprick, but did the U.S. hit a nerve? We start here. The U.S. strikes back, launching dozens of missiles against Iran-backed militias. Some of those steps will be seen, some may not be seen. The White House wants to avoid a war with Iran, so why is more action still on the table? Historic flooding up and down California puts millions under alert. Power outages, mudslides, and flash flooding to the point where you can't drive in places. Forecasts predict a month's worth of rain within hours. We'll tell you what sets this storm apart. And the Democratic nominating process officially gets underway. South Carolina, we did it again. But even if President Biden's running virtually unopposed, is he more vulnerable now than ever? From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. We knew the U.S. was going to retaliate. It was just unclear where and when. One by one, their flag-draped cases carefully carried across the tarmac. The president placing his hand over his heart. For a full week after a deadly drone strike killed three American soldiers in Jordan, the U.S. had been mulling its options. After all, you got several groups targeting Americans in the region. Do we go after all of them? They're all sponsored by Iran. Well, what will get our message across without sparking a straight-up war? And if we accidentally hit civilians, that creates even more distrust to the West. But on the other hand, if we don't do anything, if we don't do enough, does that just invite more attacks? New reporting on these U.S.-led airstrikes now underway. Hitting multiple targets, and this is something that's going to be going on for multiple days. Well, on Friday, we began getting word that counterstrikes had begun. They really didn't seem to stop for a day and a half. And now U.S. officials say this still isn't over. ABC's foreign correspondent James Longman joins us from Tel Aviv this morning. James, there were a, a lot of strikes here. Can you just walk me through what we know about the timeline and how this all went down? Yeah, there were a lot more strikes than I think anybody had anticipated, much more comprehensive. Uh, And so on late Friday night, we got word that the United States had started these retaliatory strikes. 85 strikes on seven locations in Iraq and Syria, crucially not in Iran. The goal here is to get these uh, attacks to stop. The administration was very, very clear that it did not want to start a war with Iran. This was meant to... uh, stop the situation from escalating any further. But nevertheless, there were a lot of targets hit. Command and control sites for these groups that are backed by Iran, uh, intelligence centers, rocket and drone missile storage facilities. Uh, People will have heard perhaps Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard, the Quds Force. They have facilities inside Iraq and, and they were struck. And then you're also talking about other smaller groups, all of whom have launched attacks on on U.S. bases in uh, Iraq and Syria uh, over the last few months. In fact, they've launched something like 160 attacks since that uh, October 7th terror attack by Hamas. And so this was intended to put a stop to any more attacks on on U.S. forces in the region. And so then, James, that's the Friday night attacks in Iraq and in Syria. And that's where we thought that the, the, the drone attack originated from. Then we started hearing about a series of strikes against the Houthis in Yemen, right? Now, 
we've struck them before, and yet these are not the people that killed our our service members in that drone strike. So was that just you know, we're going to hit anyone who's been hitting us recently? Send them all a message? Is, is this more targeted? What what was this? This is part of an ongoing parallel campaign to try to uh, to stop the ongoing attacks on ships in the Red Sea. Iranian-backed Houthi militants launching a new wave of missiles and drones at commercial ships. One of the most important uh, shipping channels in the world, incredibly important for trade. These attacks by Houthi uh, rebels in Yemen, who are backed by Iran as well, have been ongoing for the last few months. And both the US, but also its allies, the UK as well, have been carrying out strikes on Houthis. And so on Saturday, we heard that they launched uh, strikes on 36 locations inside Yemen, trying to degrade their uh, capabilities. This is about freedom of navigation. There are others in the world that are watching this to see how, how serious we are about this. And we are serious. But this is much less just a U.S. Effort. This is a global coalition, mm. not just the UK, Australia, Canada, New Zealand. Like I say, this is a vital shipping lane. So this is an ongoing parallel uh, operation, if you like. But they're both connected because these are all proxies that Iran has activated following that October 7th attack. Yeah, that's the thing, James. If the common theme here is Iran, I guess I'm trying to figure out then what Iran does next? Like, do they tell these proxy groups, you know, knock it off? We don't want you guys or us getting bombed anymore. Do, or do I don't know, do they tell them to step up their offenses? Because at some point, if that happens, you think the U.S. has to d- address Iran more directly somehow. Well, it's funny because it looks like the strikes on Iraq and Syria have had a different effect than the ones so far on Yemen. And, and here's why. Not long after the attack uh, on Iraq, one of these groups, Kataib Hezbollah, which is another Iran-backed group, has launched attacks on uh, U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. They came out with a statement quite quickly saying, well, we're now going to, we're not going to focus so much on the Americans. We're going to suspend our hostilities against U.S. forces. We're going to focus our energies on supporting our brothers in Gaza. So it looks on the face of it that perhaps Tehran has got the message from these 85 strikes. Interestingly, Iran has not put a stop to what's been going on from Yemen. They have not told the Houthis to stop. Mm. They've continued to not just supply them with funds, but crucially with this material, with the drones. We know that they are the drones that the Houthis use are supplied to them by Iran. So if we start to see some of these drone attacks from the Houthis where they're using drones that are not supplied by Iran, we'll know that Perhaps they've tried to turn the tap off there, but for the moment, they haven't done that. If this was the beginning of our, of our response, there will be more steps. Some of those steps will be seen, some may not be seen, but there will be more action taken to respond to the death of the tragic death of the three brave U.S. service members. Hey, and the U.S. says there's still more to come. I was surprised to hear the U.S. so openly say, like, yeah, more strikes are potentially on the horizon. What do they do? We know what they mean by that? Well, they've said at a time and place of our choosing, and you may not know what they look like. Are you concerned about direct escalation from the Iranians themselves? Well, again, this is something that we have to look at as a threat. We have to prepare for every contingency, and we are prepared for that contingency. And I think they have to give Iran a sense that you know, they're not going to be as predictable as perhaps in the past. They're not going to give them so much warning that it started, but it may not necessarily have finished. Uh, And, you know, hopefully this war of words doesn't spill over into an actual war. 
right? And the U.S., you'd think, doing an especially delicate dance because of where you are in Israel right now, James, and perhaps the Israeli government being on the verge of a much larger hostage deal. That would be a landmark, a potential turning point in this war. And so no one wants to upset the balance of that. However, American service members seem to require a response from the Pentagon. So we'll see what happens, James. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Brad. Next up on Start Here, a storm is basically dousing the entire state of California. Evacuations have begun, and we'll take you there after the break. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. We all know there are things in life you got to compromise on. Like when I want burritos, but my wife wants salad, the compromise is we get salads. But when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor who doesn't take the time to really hear your health concerns or who's in a rush to end your appointments. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance, so literally no compromises because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free. Find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc dot com slash start here. When we talk about something affecting a state like California, usually you mean a part of California, right? It's one of the biggest states in the country. It's got several different regions and climates within it. But over the next 24 hours, nearly all of the state's 40 million residents are going to be impacted one way or another by an absolutely gigantic storm system that began slamming the coast yesterday. In fact, the National Weather Service's Los Angeles Bureau said, quote, all systems are go for one of the more dramatic weather days in recent memory. ABC's chief meteorologist Ginger Z has made her way to Los Angeles. Ginger, how bad could this get? Yeah, when I was looking at the models, even, you know, midweek last week, and I said, this is a history making storm. Truly, we haven't seen something to this degree if it verifies potentially in more than a quarter century. But to see that happening already in the last 24 hours, so many trees down, rivaling one of the worst from last March of 2023 in the Bay Area, and now centered today on Los Angeles. 
we follow these um, elevated risk or high risk of flash flooding. They're so rare to have these days, and it's certainly rare to have the two in a row, and it's even more rare to have a giant population like the city of Los Angeles make their way into the highest level of flash flooding risk two days. We already had a buildup of water outside about two feet, and so we prepared and got sandbags, and we're going to shut the store down just because of the we know it's going to flood. The combination of power outages, mudslides, and flash flooding to the point where you can't drive in places, that combo doesn't happen often here. You know, if we're talking about the last time something like that occurred in a quarter century, you probably have a lot of people who have never seen it. Being in Southern California living by the beach, we don't really worry about rain too much. I mean, it's just not really a concern of ours ever. Um, but here we are. There are people who have even grown up here who have never seen it. So I think that we're teetering on unchartered territory, which is tough for people. I've seen so many places where, you know, you have great growth and expansion. And this is one of those places in our country where you have a highly populated, densely populated area. This storm is predicted to be one of the largest and most significant in our county's history. It's not just the flash flooding, right? This is a storm that's going to come and already has with dramatic winds in excess of 60 miles per hour, some of the gusts up to 90 miles per hour. When you put those two things together, because it's not like Southern California doesn't get wind, they get the Santa Ana winds, but those are dry and hot. Now we're talking about saturating the soil with inches of rain. The trees will come down, they'll go into cars, into power lines, and you will see mud and debris flow, no question. Oh, like mud slides, that's what that means? Yes, and so we've already seen it in the Bay Area, you know, and it doesn't have to be big to make huge impact. So I've seen small ones that cover roads, and so now you've cut off a road. Worst case scenario would be if mud comes in and gets into my house. We went and interviewed... Teresa Reese, who lives in Sun Valley, California, she is in one of the evacuation orders, meaning they're telling people, you gotta go. Her road was closed. I know that the land fire, which was 2022, is one of the reasons they're really concerned. Yeah. You remember that one? Yes, I do. Yeah, it came like halfway down that hill. So it was within a block and a half from my house, but... I didn't evacuate. Yeah. She has never had to evacuate before, and she's lived here since 1981. <laughs> They're actually not too bad. They're not terrible, yeah. She had a whole pickup truck uh, full of sandbags because she's like, gosh, this one seems even bigger. So she's going to sandbag up. I actually helped her put the sandbags in front of her garage, and she's going to make a, a kind of a last-minute decision as to whether to go, because this is a long event, right? It's two days. I'm, I'm not planning to evacuate unless it gets, like, seriously bad, mm-hmm. which is, I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing, but I'm thinking optimistically. She said she'll kind of just, like, wait it out. We told her, obviously, better to go, huh. um, just because of the amount of rain. When when you look at the some of the models, they're starting to output even more than they were originally. So say you get four to eight inches widespread. That's... months worth of rain in this part of our country in just, you know, 12 to 24 hours. Wow. That is going to do flash flood damage in itself. Then add on top of it the winds and the south-facing mountains, and that's the thing, is you kind of have these transverse mountains that run, you know, from Santa Barbara, and then they kind of go perpendicular to the coast or where the fire hose of moisture is going to be coming in. The foothills of these mountains are going to be majorly problematic because that's where you're going to end up with 8 to even 12 inches of rain. Yeah.
Because, Ginger, that's what seems to stick out about this storm system, right, is that it's not just one area. This seems like an entire state is getting hammered all at once. What is causing this to be so unique? Yeah, well, that's the other thing is, you know, the Bay Area got most of the action last year. It was definitely a wetter season for Southern California, but we are in an extremely strong El Nino. So this is a symptom of El Nino for sure. We see really powerful wet weather when you have an El Nino. What's happened here is we've got this low pressure system, this this just typical storm, I guess you'd call it, intensifying and very slow moving. And it's just kind of sagging down the coast slowly. So the fire hose that it's picking up on that atmospheric river is just going to be pointed at certain places for 12 to 18 hours at a time. And so it's the longevity of this. I will point to 1998, the last time we had a really strong El Nino. If you look back at the news coverage of what happened around Los Angeles then, it's devastating. So if we do that again in the coming 24 to 36 hours, it is not going to be pretty around here. And then you start looking inland and like we're talking about like four to six feet of snow in the mountains, like the entire state. Um, Ginger Z there in Los Angeles. uh, Stay safe and we'll talk to you later. Thank you. If you didn't notice, the South Carolina primary was this weekend. The reason you might not have noticed was because this was only the Democratic primary. Remember, in South Carolina, they split them up, so Donald Trump and Nikki Haley won't be going one-on-one for another couple weeks. But this was a big deal for Democrats because, according to the Democratic Party, this was their first officially sanctioned contest of the cycle. In their eyes, South Carolina goes first, and this was their chance to get people excited about re-electing President Biden. South Carolina, we did it again. You did it for me again. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Biden did, in fact, cruise to a victory, but did it actually accomplish anything? ABC's White House correspondent Mary Alice Parks was on the ground as this played out. Mary Alice, what did we learn from this? Like, was there anything for Biden to prove here? I was really struck by the turnout number. Actually, only 4% of registered voters in South Carolina came out to vote. What, what kind of turnout you have? <laughs> of course, well, you know, you can say, well, the results were a foregone conclusion. How do you get people to care to go vote when, you know, for an incumbent who's not facing a challenger? But Democrats invested there. South Carolina that created the path to the White House for Joe Biden and me. They hyped this up. They made a big deal about the fact that they changed the schedule to put South Carolina first. It's because of this congregation and the black community of South Carolina and not an exaggeration in Jim Clyburn that I stand here today as your president. They said it was a real way to honor the black vote in particular, the black community. I mean, black voters make up 60% of primary Democratic primary voters in South Carolina. That's nearly three times the national average. And they talked openly about how uh, campaigning in South Carolina was a way to hone their message and talk to black voters and to let them have a really big say in the Democratic primary by going first. So the fact that they could still only get about 4% of voters out, I think really points to still that excitement and enthusiasm challenge that the president has. President Joe Biden is doing a lot for America, and we that's why we come to show our support. I've heard this go around that black voters may be a little bit uh, more turned off from him because of how the, the economy has gone. But um, as far as I know, black voters are still pretty supportive of President Joe Biden now. And I talked to a lot of voters who got at that that challenge for the president. It's definitely a different feel. Not, not hearing many people talking about voting. 
um, this time around too, which is which is a little scary. Brian Gray, he owns Railroad Barbecue in Columbia. Uh, he voted for Biden, but he also voted for Nikki Haley when she was governor. Mm. And he talked about how he's not sold on voting for Biden again in a general election. The student loan plan, I want to see that done. I want to see health care overhauled. Yeah. Small business, tax breaks for the small business owners. He said that he felt frustrated that some of the big promises on criminal justice reform and student loan forgiveness and health care uh, didn't get done as much, that inflation is high and tough for his business. Could you see yourself um, voting Republican? Um, I could. I, I, I'm, I voted for Nikki Haley when she ran for governor both times. Um, you if, liked her. If it, yeah, I did. If it, it was an interesting conversation to me, not only getting at that enthusiasm challenge, but also getting at the Nikki Haley of it. I mean, she right. was, obviously we're talking about the Republican race now, but but she was the governor, twice the governor there in South Carolina, and, and obviously the voters there know her well. Well, and let's talk about South Carolina and the Republican side, because Donald Trump and Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley's still in this race, at least she says she is. They're going to battle against each other. And one of the things that keeps coming up from the Haley camp is not, hey, listen, we're going to win South Carolina. At this point, it doesn't seem like like they will. What they are saying is we can actually beat Biden in a fall matchup. Trump can't. Is is that I mean, is that true? And is that resonant with voters? Well, we don't know for sure if it's true, but we do know that there's a lot of data to suggest that. I mean, the polls really support that theory. I mean, poll after poll shows that she does better than Trump in hypothetical general election matchups against Biden. I'm leaning towards Haley. I just think that we need somebody young and fresh. There are a lot of independent swing voters that see her as more moderate, more economically conservative, but maybe, you know, not as MAGA sort of Republican. And that's really attractive to them. And we know that that the president has been struggling to get Democrats and some swing voters excited again. The first party to retire its 80 year old candidate is going to be the party that wins this election. I think it's a very interesting question because I think that Nikki Haley has a really strong argument to make there Mm. about whether she would actually fare better against Biden. Right. Although we keep saying, like, South Carolina is her home state. If you can't win that, what primary are you actually going to win? I get that people who didn't vote this weekend are now allowed to vote in the GOP primary, but like, Haley's still a significant underdog. Um, Mary Atlas, can you tell us what's happening later this week in Nevada? Because most states either have a primary or a caucus. Nevada has both, and apparently they're both happening this week. Like, What is happening, first of all? And I guess then we could talk about who might win. Yeah, this is a total mess, Brad, and it's confusing. And and sure, it's confusing to voters. The state apparatus wanted to move away from the caucus. Uh, Primaries are often seen as a little bit more inclusive, accessible. So they decided to host a state-run primary, get away from the idea of a caucus. Uh, So the primary is happening first, and Nikki Haley signed up. Her name's on the ballot. That's what the state's doing. She will be there on the ballot. The Republican National Committee, the actual Republican Party, which, of course, is in charge of awarding delegates for the Republican nomination, said no. Don't do it. Don't use a mail-in ballot. Don't do anything. It's a meaningless event. Trump put a lot of pressure on them to not participate in that, and they went along with it and instead are hosting a party-run caucus, and only the caucus results will count for actually awarding delegates. Nikki Haley's not participating in that, so it's confusing. Trump is participating in that. He will, by virtue, be the only one that then does get delegates. Um, 
Are you confused yet? I hope that made sense. <laughs> so, okay. So Nikki Haley might win this primary that the Republicans say they don't care about. Donald Trump will be running basically unopposed in the caucus they do care about. We'll see what happens later this week. Uh, Mary Alice Parks, thank you so much. Thanks. You got it. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, they tried to embrace Black History Month, but this was way off target. One last thing is next. With daylight saving time upon us, we're looking forward to more daylight and longer days from March through November. And while setting our clocks forward gives us the illusion of more time, it doesn't necessarily help businesses find qualified candidates any sooner. Fear not, there is a solution. ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is your 24-7 hiring partner working tirelessly to connect you with the right candidate. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, it gets distributed to over 100 job sites, ensuring you reach a diverse pool of qualified individuals. Their smart technology scans thousands of resumes, matching you with people whose skills perfectly align with your job requirements. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash start here. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash start here. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And one last thing. February, of course, is Black History Month, a valuable time to learn about the men and women who have empowered the black community over the years and impacted all of our lives. So it really helps if you get their names right. So I want to get my kids this little magnet learning activity since Black History coming up. This is a teacher named Tierra Epsi. She actually teaches U.S. history at her job, but on her own time, she picked up what looked like a pretty cute little sticker magnet set at Target with portraits of famous black Americans. Then she realized a lot of the names didn't match the faces. For starters, this is not Carter G. Woodson. This is W.B. Du Bois. Peep the stash, peep the stash. They got the name wrong. This post went viral, but she wasn't the only one to notice. And this weekend, Target announced, quote, we will no longer be selling this product in stores or online. We've also ensured the product's publisher is aware of the errors, end quote. But it raises several questions that go beyond the Target executives who signed off on this and even beyond one company. First is, forget history, this is not an uncommon phenomenon for many black Americans now. To be confused with a colleague or a stranger who shares little resemblance. Booker T. Washington doesn't look anything like W.E.B. Du Bois either, but their names also got switched on this little carousel. And you might be saying, oh, come on, like this is history. It's not common knowledge. How many people actually know what these historical figures look like off the top of their head? Which many educators say is also the point here. At this moment, black history has been so marginalized at so many schools whether because of funding or time or being deemed too woke, that families have to resort to target magnet sets that go beyond Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. Then when they finally put forth the effort to teach their kids, the makers haven't done their homework. Perhaps this is a good moment to say that Carter G. Woodson, often called the father of black history, wrote The Miseducation of the Negro. And lastly, mistakes like these, as unintentional as they may be, often lead to bigger conversations about diversity in the workplace. Because think about how many different people are involved in greenlighting what goes on Target shelves. Not just even at Target, but at the suppliers, the manufacturers. If someone at any of these places had offered a correction, would they have a seat at the table and would they get listened to? Tierra Epsi, who caught this, was the first to say mistakes happen, but she hopes this can also kick off Black History Month as a lesson in itself. 
everyone needs an editor, which is a good time for me to say thanks to the many people who edit my words every day. We all make mistakes. That said, you gotta peep the stash. Lesson for life, peep the stash. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.